I'm Leah Simone Bowen, the host of Podcast Playlist on CBC. We're a podcast discovery show, and we love a great story. So each week, we highlight the podcast we think you should check out. The show is a classic. Love how they select their topics. It's great. And from time to time, we're joined by some of the biggest names in podcasting. My name is Jamie Loftus. John Green. I'm Michael Hobbs. My name is Nicole Byer, and I have a podcast recommendation. You can find Podcast Playlist on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Kwame Alexander, best-selling author of poetry and children's books, set out to write a collection of love poems. Instead, he ended up writing a memoir about his own learning how to love. It's called Why Fathers Cry at Night, and he'll talk about how it felt to write about the things he felt the most shame about and how it changed him as a man. That's coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm not an open person. Like, I thought I was, but of course, I realized that those poems were me using metaphor to sort of mask everything I was dealing with. Vulnerability versus the appearance of vulnerability. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. That's the author Kwame Alexander. Uh, And in his new memoir, in the early chapters, he writes about being 12 years old and being forced to work at his dad's publishing company. All of his buddies were playing Atari and skateboarding. He was licking stamps and selling books at trade shows. And it kind of worked out, right? His parents taught him how to love literature, how to respect literature, But also, he ended up kind of resenting it. His new memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, is full of, like, complicated stories like this. Now, if you don't know Kwame, uh, he's best known as a writer of children's books and poetry. One of his most famous novels, The Crossover, is now a Disney Plus series. Another called The Undefeated won the prestigious Caldecott Medal. And a lot of people call him a genius for the way he introduces complex ideas to kids. But here's the thing. Kwame Alexander is 54 years old, and he says he's still wrestling with complex ideas, too, like being at peace with your childhood, being at peace with your parents, being a good father. Here's our conversation. I'll tell you that I I love this book. I mean, I've read a lot of memoirs in this gig over the years, but yours, like Why Fathers Cry at Night, I I haven't read anything like it before, partly because it's a bunch of different things. It's like love poems and recipes and, and memories. Why tell your story this way? It's sort of like parenting, man. At any given time, you're making dinner, helping with homework, answering the phone, planning out your schedule for the week. You're like all over the place. And that's sort of, you know, how this book is written. It's not linear. It's not chronological. It's all about all the many ways that I've tried to love, the way that I've learned how to love, who I learned from, where I failed, my flaws, where I've tried to be better, and where I want to go from here. And that just required me to sort of approach it from a lot of different places and spaces, whether it be the recipe of the fried chicken recipe that I tried to perfect as a way of remembering my mother who passed away six years ago, or 
you know, writing a letter to my wife who after 23 years, you know, we've decided to uncouple, you know, so it's just there's so many different ways I needed to approach it. And I thought, why not break all the rules and just do what I want to do? And, and I'll love it. And if I love it, there's a chance you're going to like it. I, I understand what you mean there. I mean, uh, memories are not just even though memoirs are just stories. Memories are not just stories. Memories are stories, but they're also little fragments of the way we feel about things or or recipes. Exactly, man. I mean, that's 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 how they exist in the real world. It's fleeting. It's unpredictable. It's it's our imaginations. It's it's our truth. It's our stories. One of the ways we unlock memories is through music, and music comes up a lot in your books. Today, before we start talking about your childhood, I, I wanted to play a song to get some memories going. Kwame Alexander, why are we playing that? <laughs> You're playing that because my editor says that uh, most of my books are evident that I have daddy issues. <laughs> <laughs> so hold on, what, what's, and, what song is it? Tell me that first. Oh, that song's from my father by Horace Silver. You know, this was one of the albums my father owned, the jazz records that he owned that I discovered in his... In a, in a milk crate in the attic in our house that that helped me to sort of see my father in a different light because anybody who who listens to Ella Fitzgerald sing I've got you under my skin must be kind of cool and 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 a lover of love even though I didn't think my dad was so yeah and this was also the, the song that you know really kickstarted the book that jump started my career the crossover the, the way you write about your dad here is fascinating. I mean, the, the sort of duality of him, like the dad that you you knew and the dad that you're kind of discovering. I mean, so like on the surface, Baptist preacher, preached black liberation theology, owned a small publishing company. You worked there, as I mentioned, as a kid. You write that he was he was really stern, that he never said, I love you. But you but he was it seemed to be really important that you loved books. Why was that so important to him? I guess because he loved them. And, you know, with the way, the way we often parent are sort of the ways that we learned how to parent. And we're grasping and grabbing on to these, these ideas and notions that, that, that have stuck with us. When my father was five, like the thing that sort of defined his relationship to his dad, the way he knew his father loved him is, and he tells me this, is that when he was five, he used to sit on his father's lap and read the newspaper from front to back, and his father would listen to him. And that was their special moment. That was their moment around these words, around reading. For me, you know, it was always books. It, it was it was literature. It was words. It was He owned a book publishing company. I worked for him. I mean, uh, I had to read the dictionary and his dissertations. Like, books were everything. And so... That's the way that this man loved. He loved through words, and he taught me everything I know about them. Yeah, what's that story? Can you tell that story about the, is it the New Jersey Turnpike? Ah, the New Jersey Turnpike, my friend. Every Thanksgiving, we drive from Virginia to New York City, 
to do two things. One, to have Thanksgiving dinner at Hunan Park 2 restaurant on 93rd in Columbus. We ate Chinese food every Thanksgiving. I had shrimp with lobster sauce. And two, because the Friday after Thanksgiving, my father held a book fair. It was called the African Heritage Book Expo. And my sisters and I worked this book fair where we sold books. And so on this particular Thursday morning, we're driving up and my father who's driving falls asleep at the wheel and the car turns over, flips over a couple times. We land upside down and the first, he, my father checks in with each of us and my, my first words are damn to which my Baptist minister book publisher father says, watch your words, Kwame. And I'm thinking, dude, we just got into an accident. Who cares about what I'm saying? And then he proceeds to tell me to get out the car and crawl out the car and pick up all the books that had come out of the trunk and put them back in the crates. Because apparently we were still going to sell books at this book fair the next day. Oh, my God. Like words and books were everything to him. And we sold books the next day. And and I sold a lot of books and I got to keep my 10 percent. That was my salary. And it was it was as if nothing had happened and everything had happened. But that was our life. I mean, you would expect in that moment for him to, to hug you or make sure if you're okay or maybe take you to the hospital, maybe maybe take you home. And throughout your memoir, and this I found this really interesting, you write a lot about grace, like learning to give your parents grace, but also hoping for grace as a parent. And I was hoping we could talk about that a little bit later. But like, how does that memory sit with you when you think about it now? Like, do you feel like you can give your father grace for moments like that? Heck yeah. I mean... First of all, it's it makes for a great story. <laughs> That's number one. And number two, <laughs> I mean, look at me. I've written 39 books. Like, there's no way I'm I'm where I am today talking to you, Tom, or CBC about my, my 39th book, were it not for this man who who immersed me in literature from a very early age. I am who I am because of him. So yeah, I extended some grace. I may not have liked it. But, you know, our parents, they love us in the way that they know how to love us and not necessarily in the way that we we want them to. And I imagine the same thing is going to be true of my two daughters, that at some point they're going to judge me. You know, for anyone who's just getting into our conversation, uh, I'm speaking to the best-selling poet and author of children's books, Kwame Alexander. For the first time ever, he's sharing his life in a new memoir called Why Fathers Cry at Night. The the road to I mean like the 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 road you paid paved for me just then hey like you know my dad was hard on me but he loved books he encouraged me to like books and you know hey I published thirty nine books I'm a big I'm a big success now like even that road is even bumpier than you're letting on there I mean you you write here that you wanted to get as far away from language and literature as possible by the time you get to college but I love this so much you get to take a class taught by one of the most famous poets of her generation maybe the past century take a listen I am she making rainbows in coffee cups, watching fish jump after midnight in my dreams. On the stove, left front burner is the stew already chewed, certain to burn as I dream of waves of nothingness. Floating to shore, riding a low moon on a slow cloud, I am she who writes the poems. Kwame, who's that? That is my my mother. That is my, my literary... Um, Guardian, that is my college professor. That is my dear friend, Nikki Giovanni. 
Nikki Giovanni, huge name, especially in the black arts movement of the 60s, was nominated for a Grammy for one of her poetry albums. Like, you know, one of the most famous poets ever. Tell me, I want to hear this from you, your experience studying under Nikki Giovanni. Well, I had read a lot of her books as a kid. My parents bought a lot of her books, you know, and uh, I felt like I knew, I knew her. I'd read her. I studied her. So by the time I got to college and discovered she was going to be a teacher at Virginia Tech, a professor, I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to ace her class. I, I know her better than any student <laughs> on this campus. And in three classes, one after the other, sophomore, junior, and senior year, I got C's. And I was devastated and livid and frustrated and angry and confused. And I let her know it. And I did some some things that I can't even say are unmentionable because I wrote about them in the book. But I did do some other things and said some other things that were <laughs> that I regret. And, you know, I left Virginia Tech. I left Virginia Tech thinking that she didn't like me very much and I knew I didn't like her. And over the course of the years, we had no contact. And I remember my first poetry book that I had published because no one wanted to publish it. Um, I was reading poetry at a conference and selling my books and she bought a couple copies of it. And I remember her saying congratulations and me thinking, yeah, I knew, I knew we didn't like each other. So I didn't think anything else about it. And then I remember maybe my fifth book came out and it was a collection of love poems. And, and I was in St. Louis, Missouri, reading with a jazz band and a club. And, and there was a, uh, an, a reporter who covered the, the show. And I remember reading the article that came out and in the article that a reporter, like good reporters do, he quoted other writers about my work. And one of the writers he quoted was Nikki Giovanni, who said, if I had a literary son, I'd like to think it's Kwame Alexander. And I remember thinking, how is this possible that this woman who doesn't like me is saying that about me? I think the moment where I realized it, it wasn't that she didn't like me, that there was something else going on. I was maybe 15 years, 16 years after Virginia Tech, and I had been asked to speak at an English teachers conference in New York, the New York, New York State English Council, mm -hmm. 800 English teachers. It was my first big keynote speech. They were paying me $2,000, <laughs> which was like 20000 to me. It was just a lot of money. And I remember just giving the best speech I could give, getting a standing ovation. And at the end, the organizer gave me my check, and I felt like I'm a millionaire and I asked her, how did she find out about me, this little old poet who published his own poetry? And she said, well, Nikki Giovanni was going to be our keynote and she couldn't do it and she recommended you. And that's when I knew, you know, I needed to apologize for all the stuff I'd said to her at Virginia Tech. She had done so much for my career by that point, you know, and, and I just, I apologized for all the things I had said and done at Virginia Tech, and she acted like she had no idea what I was talking about, Tom. And she just laughed, and she said, look, if I gave you a C, it's because you deserved it, but look mm -hmm. at you now. And, if you know, my one job, my sole job was to, was to help you become the man you needed to become, was to be your teacher and to help you become the writer you needed to become. And I just, it was just such a powerful moment, and it was life-giving and, and life-saving in so many ways. But what, what, what do you make of the the journey you had to go on there, though? What did I make of that journey? That's a great question, Tom. There's a piece about Nikki in the book. Yeah. And it's called An Unlikely Love Story. Let me just read it to you. Okay. 
<clears throat> Take from this what you will, my daughters. The lesson I took is that there are going to be people in your lives who did not change your diapers, who did not plan your birthday parties, who did not spank you, who did not force you to read books, who did not worry every time you had a sleepover or went to a school dance, who will show you something significant and meaningful that will matter in your life, even when you think it doesn't. There will be people who will honestly love you like I do, like your mother does. So when you find your Miss Giovanni, don't do like I did. Open your arms immediately and welcome her and don't write a play about her. In 2004, <laughs> Texas Tech professor of biological sciences, Robert Baker, named a bat species he discovered in Ecuador after Miss Giovanni. You know, bats, unlike flying squirrels and gliding possums, are the only mammals naturally capable of true and sustained flight. Nikki's been writing books for more than 54 years, and she recently retired after 35 years of teaching. Talk about sustained flight, a combined almost centennial of Nikki's feeling, of Nikki's talking, of Nikki's judgment, and we are all the better for it. If I could have a literary mother, I'd like to say it is Nikki Giovanni. And beautiful. Is what you make of it that if someone reaches out to you, even if they're not, you know, even if they're not going to drop you off a dance recital, even if they're not going to take you to the movies and pick you up at the mall, to if someone offers you that love to, to, to offer it back? To receive it, you know, because even though I was upset and livid and pushed back, I kept taking her classes, Tom. So a part of me was smart enough at least not to just walk away. I might have pushed back, but I didn't walk away. And that w- it ended up being the best thing that could have happened for me becoming a writer. I like to think that my, my father introduced me to, you know, the power of words. My mother made words fun and cool. Nikki Giovanni taught me how to make words dance on the page. I would not have gotten that had I walked away. The receiving, I understand. The giving, I find really interesting in this book. Um even just then, you know, if people haven't read the book, they'll, they'll hear you mention your daughters in that excerpt you just read for us. And you have found this great success, as I mentioned on the, on the way in, writing books for young people, writing books for like young, young readers. And, you know, I got to talk to John Clausen yesterday and we were talking a little bit about this, this idea that like if you write for young people, you must be the most natural parent in the world. And in your memoir, it really caught me off guard, Kwame, and, and only talk about this as much as you want. You write about the experience of being a father to two daughters. You write about the experience of becoming estranged from one of them. Just Can you talk to me about writing about that? Well, I can talk about it in the context of writing about <laughs> most of the stuff I wrote about in this book. I am not a vulnerable person. I'm not an open person. Like, I thought I was because I wrote poems for so many years. But, of course, I realized that those poems were me using metaphor to sort of mask everything I was dealing with. So I didn't have to sort of really be open because I could hide behind the metaphor. You can give the appearance of vulnerability because poetry is inherently seems like a very vulnerable art form. So of course you're being vulnerable. I understand. Yeah, exactly. So writing this book, I had to come out of, I had to, I had to pull down that window I had to knock down that wall. I had to begin to sort of chip away at it and and become that person that I've never been, become that vulnerable person that I've seen all the women in my life be 
and become that vulnerable person that my father and my grandfathers weren't. You're saying that there's an A and B, that there was, there's an, there was you before the book, and now, since you've written the book, you're a different person to your daughters, to your, to your dad, to, to your partner. Well, I'm a different person to myself. But yeah, I mean, once, I, once the light switch clicked, I was like, oh, yeah, I like this new quality because I'm getting to know myself better. I'm loving myself better. Where did you go, by the way? It feels like you walked halfway across the room there. It felt like you went into like at the Holland Tunnel or something like that. I guess that's what happens when you're on that journey, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that, I was, I, you know, my minor was theater. I was trying to create that theatrical moment, that, that distance. But see how I came back to it? <laughs> I said, did he, did he get swallowed into the sewer? Like what, 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 what happened to him? But I did, hear, I did hear what you said, though. It's still, I'm evolving. It's real time. It's like, it's discomfort. It's still uncomfortable. But the thing is, like, I still have the fear, Tom, but I'm facing it now and I'm, I'm doing it. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great metaphor for what I'm living. But no, that was me walking away from, from my computer accidentally. My apologies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, it's, it's, let me say this now, like, I think there are, are a lot of books written about sort of transformations and there's a lot of memoirs written about, hey, I started, you know, I started in this place and I'll never forgive this person or I didn't, I wasn't able to love this person and now I'm able to love this person. You know, I, I've, I haven't read too many books that have sort of, I don't know, preached an equanimity or, or an acceptance of, of the way things are and an acceptance of the way things were and the way things should be at the same time. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. I also, you know, I think the reason why, you know, there's that calmness and that, you know, assuredness is because, Tom, I see the results of me being vulnerable. I see my siblings and I having the best relationship we've ever had as evidenced by the fact that we were in, we've been in the same room twice in the past two months, which is more than we've been in the room since our, since, since we were kids. We've been in the same space. And that's been beautiful. My father and I were having these really open conversations about things I never would have had the courage to talk about. And that makes me realize that it's not as bad, you know, as I imagine it's going to be trying to be this this new Kwame. It would be a crime to have you on the show and not have you read poetry. And I know you already read a little bit, but I want you to read a little bit more. Can you read Instructions for Leaving? Sure. And tell me a little bit about it before you, before you read it, if you don't mind. Well, I just, you know, I want my daughters to understand the way I love their mothers. And I want, I don't, you know, I don't want divorce to become the traditional cliche narrative. The thing that ended it, the, it's over. You know, that drama, the trauma or whatever. I, I want the narrative to be something different. And so... Yeah, the marriage ended, but the family doesn't have to. And so this was a piece that I wanted to to share about that. Once the earthquake is settled, accommodate the anger. Let it move in. Fix it dinner, then put it to bed. Part as partners in wonder, stargazers discovering possibility. Two people who dreamed a world yesterday. Keep a room in your heart. Do not let your tomorrows explode Pay attention to memory. Honor the naughty and the jubilant. 
the storm that felled you, but also the rainbow. Be neighborly, have less thunder in your mouth, make a joyful noise. Do not waste time as rivals, erstwhile lovers who no longer laugh. Play the new music of your life softly, like a sunrise mission. Mourn the changing season, yes. Mourn the changing season. Step out into what you have lost and accomplished. Have afternoon tea and talk about it. Remind each other to leave something behind that makes you smile. Now, go be grateful. Kwame Alexander with the poem Instructions for Leaving. Kwame is a best-selling author of poetry and children's fiction. His memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, is out now. That is it for this episode of Q. The other episode uh, that's up today, as I say as my voice changes, uh, is with Deborah Cox, the Canadian music icon. There's an irony in all this, right? Because she's a Canadian music icon. In 2022, she's inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. I listened to this playlist on on, uh, Canada Day. It was called Canadian Gems, and I think Deborah had the third or fourth song on it. But she'll tell you, when she was starting out in Canada, every major record label turned her down. And she had to go to the States to build her career. And she has a lot to say. I love an and rather than a, you know, that rather than a but, like an and. She talks about holding on to the memories of that rejection in one hand and gratitude in the other hand at the same time. Really interesting. Uh, go check that out wherever you got this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.